here we are, safe and sound, shouldn't be taken lightly. A week has gone by since we last met, and all kinds of things could have come our way, and here we are by the grace of God. We've sung his praises because he's worthy of it. Here he was without any beginning nor end, uh, and uh, he took the form of man and subjected himself to our space-time dimension, and so he came to an unusual parcel of land in the Middle East, and we've been reading about that place and the events that transpired in the life of this marvelous Rabbi Jesus uh, in the last few days of his life. In fact, what we'll read about tonight really took place only a few hours before this magnificent Jesus would suffer and die for the sins of the world. The event which we will look at tonight in some greater detail is one you all know about. It's popularly referred to as the Last Supper. It was a Passover Seder. Seder means order of service. And what took place at the Last Supper was uh, something that conformed to a liturgy, the Passover liturgy or order of Service. It's the Last Supper, and we're going to read about it in our text tonight. We're in John chapter 13, and we're going to look at uh, verses 18 all the way to 30. So take a couple deep breaths. We're going to make some progress tonight. Look what it says in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And we know uh, that the Lord here is speaking of Judas. He knew what Judas was doing. Judas was in the process of betraying uh, the Lord, and the Lord saw this coming because it was prophesied centuries before it actually happened. In fact, the Lord invokes a quotation here all the way from Psalm 41, verse 9. And it says what we just read. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. I hope you never succumb to the temptation of thinking the Old Testament because it's old is irrelevant. Don't do that. Oh, no, no. It has the same marks of inspiration as the New Testament. It's all the Word of God. And I I think you need look no further than the Lord's attitude towards it. Here again, he invokes a passage from the Old Testament. You know, in that day, eating together was not as casual as it is today. If you were supping with someone, it was kind of an indication of intimacy and friendship and loyalty. And it's in this atmosphere that this Judas was drawn in. He had very special access to the Lord. He has a seat there at this very special Passover meal, the Last Supper. They're eating together. And that's what makes Judas and his betrayal of the Lord all the more overwhelming and tragic because he has the opportunity of supping with the Lord. Intimacy and what a betrayal of that intimacy and Uh, What a betrayal of that loyalty. And in the passage you will see, maybe you're seeing it differently than me, I don't see even one hint of anger on the part of Jesus who's about to be betrayed 
by one of his own. I don't see any anger, but I see a lot of anguish and sorrow in this particular text. I think you'll see it as well. It gave me pause, and I had to think about how much it really cost God, how much he had to endure in order to redeem us. And all of this tragic unfolding of events was in accordance with the purpose and sovereignty of God. It didn't just happen whimsically. These are not the cruel winds of fate. We already saw that this is all happening, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, you may not have anyone or anything to count on today, but you can count on the scriptures. No matter what circumstances come and go, they are unfolding and being fulfilled even in our day, just as its divine author, Almighty God, intended for them to be. So it looks like here, uh, Judas and Satan in particular have the upper hand, but they really don't. The Lord saw it coming. Really, they're playing right into his hand that all scripture might be fulfilled. And so it says in verse 19, from now on, the Lord is speaking, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass. Now I want to tell you, only deity can tell you something before it comes to pass. Only he who sees the end from the beginning can do something like this. He says, I'm going to tell you this before it happens. Why? So that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. That's his intent to bolster up the faith of his disciples, to conjure up the faith of regeneration on the part of those who have yet to believe. And so the Lord told them something in advance, knowing that we'll, they don't get it. They could not understand this. They did not understand this. But he knew one day they will. It'll be after the fact. And in essence, the Lord is saying there will be a day when they'll see that my foreknowledge of Judas's sinful acts is a very evidence of my divinity. They'll take note. And by the way, that's going to happen to us as well. This whole bunch of stuff in the Bible, let's just be honest, we don't fully comprehend or get, but we will one day, and then we'll look back on it when it's all fulfilled, and we'll say, oh, that's what was going on. That's why this happened. This is what your purpose was for such and such. So as with the disciples, so too with us. Now listen, though they don't understand much, uh, they're understanding something bad's going to happen to their master. And they're shaken by it all. The mystery of it all just doesn't sound good to them. They are really worried. And they're beginning to see that if certain things are going to come his way, what in the world is going to happen to us? And so the Lord, perceiving this, addresses the concern in the very next verse, verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And so he is aware of their mission. In fact, he's the one who's sending them out on what we refer to as the Great Commission. They will be sent out. They will go far and wide. They started with their testimony in Jerusalem. They'll go to the provinces around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city. They'll go to, we could say, the counties around Jerusalem. They'll go to Judea and Samaria, and then they'll go to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're commissioned by this Jesus. They'll be sent out far and wide, and they will testify of him. And uh, they're hearing of what his purpose and intent is for them. And they know of his fate. And they're wondering what theirs will be. And he simply doesn't spell it out. He simply tells them, I think, don't worry. However people respond to you is really how they respond to me. If they receive you whom I have sent, 
uh, they receive me who sent you. And if they receive me who sent you, they receive my Father who sent me. And so the opposite is true. So he's saying, don't take this personally. We are in close union you, he's saying to the disciples, and me. However people respond to you, they are in essence responding to me. We are in this together. Don't make it a personal thing. It has nothing to do with that. And so that's what he tells them. You know what he tells them? Don't worry about stuff. Um, you are nothing less than my representatives on earth. That's what he tells them. He said, forget about your fate and what people will say or do, how they'll respond to you. Please focus, I think he's saying, on your new identity. You are my representatives in the world. You will stand on my behalf before people, and you will share a message that could lead them to be saved. You will speak for me, and you will act on my behalf. That's what he tells them. He's bestowed upon them. He said, don't worry about your fate. I'll tell you your vocation. He has bestowed upon them the great honor and privilege and responsibility of representing him to the world. And folks, he's bestowed the same privilege and responsibility on you and I to this very day. Look, we sh no Christian should have an identity crisis. Who am I? What do you mean? You're an ambassador for Christ, and that's the highest of all callings. I can't think of a higher elevation for any of us on earth. Think about a job promotion that you, that'll set you up above and beyond all other peers. It means nothing. It's going to perish and end, but to be a representative of transcendent deity, the ancient of days, he who has no beginning nor end, he who spoke this very cosmos into existence in the power of his word, and we get to use our words to represent him? Come on. No Christian should think, woe is me, what is my purpose? No Christian should feel insecure, inferior, and insignificant. We are ambassadors for Christ. I want to tell you something. If I got a call from the White House tomorrow and said, Stuart, uh, whoever was on the other end, and said, uh, you're a Jewish guy and all that kind of stuff, we want you to be an ambassador to Israel. What do you think about that? Oh my goodness, that would be so cool. All the hummus and falafel that you get over. I want to tell you something, that means nothing. The Lord is already the commander-in-chief, not the person in the White House. I'm talking about the real commander-in-chief, has already, in essence, made a call like that and, and said to a guy like me and you, if you know Christ, he said, I designate you to be my ambassador to the nations. You, you don't represent a country, a mere country. You represent me. I made the countries of the world. So that is, that is, that is, holy moly. Now, when Jesus had said this, verse 21, look at this. He became troubled in spirit. That's what it says. And testified and said, truly, truly, I, I say to you that one of you will betray me. That's what he said. You know, think of this sentence. It's like a stem. See how you would complete it. Judas could have been, and then in your mind, complete it. Judas could have been, and then you complete. What potential did he have? He had such access to the master, the king of kings. Judas could have been, and you just fill in the blank. But it's not going to happen because now he's about to be taken over by Satan. And all of his potential to bring glory to the king of kings is going to be extinguished uh, in the atmosphere of the one who is soon 
going to come to possess him. And Jesus, because of all this, the tragedy of it all, the lost potential, uh, he became troubled in spirit. That's what the text says. You know, three times in John's gospel, that expression is used of the Lord. Troubled in spirit or greatly distressed. On one other occasion, he was at the burial site of Lazarus, and the text says he was troubled in spirit. They were all weeping. It bothered him. On another occasion, same emotional anguish and response, he was distressed when he began to think about his fate and the cross and humiliation and being stripped naked and being separated from his father with whom he had had unbroken fellowship from eternity past. And now the third time in God's uh, in John's gospel, we see that the God-man Jesus is distressed again, and it's in the midst of this Passover meal, this last supper, when, what a haunting phrase, one of you one of his own, the inner circle, one of them is going to betray him. And in the process, forfeit all potential. It's just tragic. Folks, I want to tell you something. Um, um, Sometimes people, when you're struggling emotionally, are going to diagnose your condition too soon. And they're going to say, you have this anguish, this anxiety, this depression. They're going to tell you because of sin in your life. And so then you're going to have to go on this expedition to try to investigate stuff and figure out the pattern of sin in your life. And sometimes you'll just make up stuff to get that person off your back. And, and that person could be right. Sometimes it's sin unrepented of and unconfessed that really can cause our soul to be weighted down uh, in the form of depression or anxiety. Uh, But I want to ask you, where is that sin in the Lord's life whose spirit was troubled, who was deeply distressed, who had a soulish kind of anguish? Would you dare go to the Lord Jesus and say, if you just confess your sin and turn from it, uh, you won't experience this anguish of soul. So you want to share this passage with those people who give you too narrow a diagnosis of your emotional travail. It could be sin, sure, and it could be a bunch of other stuff too. As it was with the Lord, he was emotionally distressed because of the loss of potential, the tragedy that is about to befall Judas, whom he loved to the end. And so this Jesus, uh, he suffered, you and I know this, an excruciating fate on the cross. But don't miss all the suffering he experienced leading up to it. The cross was the culmination of his sufferings. But I'm telling you, he suffered all the way to the cross. In fact, he's the one Isaiah spoke of in chapter 53, verse 53, 700 years before this Passover Seder. Isaiah said, he was despised and forsaken of men. And then Isaiah referred to him, the coming Messiah, this way, a man of sorrows. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah is characterized by sorrow. He is a man of sorrows. Look, look, you say, I don't get it. He knew of Judas's betrayal long before it happened, and you are absolutely 
correct. But though Jesus is in control of all the events of life, <laughs> Jesus is not unmoved by the events of life. We don't serve some unfeeling Savior. He was very much a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. Things affected him. So if things affect you, you must know you have a sympathizing Savior. And you may feel alone, even in this assemblage of folks that you don't fit in. Well, you fit with the man of sorrows. If that's your lot, lot in life, oh my heavens, you can have rich fellowship with him because you have a high priest who can sympathize with all that you're going through because he was a man of sorrows. Well, now here's what happens. Verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him. Simon Peter gestured to this unnamed disciple whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who is it of whom he is speaking. And he, this is John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, uh, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. On Passover, you take a piece of bread. It's not the same kind of bread you eat during the rest of the year. This is unleavened, but you can scoop up food with it, and that's what you did. You dipped the morsel in different kinds of food, and the Lord says, uh, this is the one of, for whom I will dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Okay, so I just read to you a few verses. But, but I don't get it. I just don't understand this. I mean, how do you dip your bread in this morsel? And how, what do you feed the grown man, Judas? I, just the whole practicality of it. How, how is this unnamed disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, how is he, I don't get it, how is he reclining on the Lord's breast? Is that what happens? I mean, and what is reclining anyway? What is what is, has that ever occurred to you, all this stuff? How do you put it together? Well, listen, look no further. You came to the right place because I want to help you. And uh, Leonardo da Vinci, you ever hear him? Yeah, so he tried to help us too with a masterful depiction of the event this evening, the Last Supper. So here it is right there. You've seen this before, have you not? This is not the real thing, by the way. This is just a reproduction. But, uh, I mean, Leonardo... Da Vinci, I don't want to take anything away from this guy's a genius. He could do all kinds of stuff. And, and here, he, this is a painting, a depiction of the event we're reading about in John 13. But I want to tell you, we can't get any help from Leonardo uh, and his depiction of what happened there. In fact, it makes it more complicated. How's anyone reclining on anyone's breast when you look at all this? In fact, at the risk of uh, offending Leonardo... I want to tell you, uh, give you a sampling of all the inaccuracies in this painting. Keep an eye on it, and I'll point them out. Look, for, uh, uh, for one thing, the table is not right. It's linear. It's long. It's high. That's not the kind of table they would have been sitting at. They sat at a very low table, and they sat on cushions or couches, and it was not a linear arrangement. I'll show you in a second what it looked like. So that's way off. Uh, furthermore, look, you can see the Lord is in the middle, right? 
And you would think that the Lord would be because that would be the place where the one of highest rank would sit. No, not according to Roman and Jewish customs. On the contrary, listen, Leonardo is painting this from the point of view of a Renaissance Italian guy. And he is totally missing the culture. I mean, it's beautiful. I like the colors and all that kind of stuff. But it is historically inaccurate. The Lord would not be sitting in the middle at all. Also, notice they are sitting. Not a one of them would be sitting. They would be reclining. That's how they did it. They would recline on low-lying couches or pillows. Also, this is the Passover meal. I don't know if you can see the food items on the table. Uh, Leonardo has bread. But it's not unleavened bread. That's the whole nature of Passover. You eat unleavened bread because leaven is a symbol of sin. I mean, he's got like, I don't know, Italian submarine sandwiches or something out on that on that deal. Man, that's not, and you know what else he has? He has not only loaves, he has fishes on the, but they would not be eating fish on this occasion. They would be eating lamb. This is Passover is about the offering of the Passover lamb, not tuna, lamb. So this is just, it's not right. Furthermore, can you see the attire of these who are present? They're dressed in Renaissance garb. What are you talking about? There's not one of them wearing a talit or a prayer shawl, which they would have been doing at the Passover Seder. By the way, all the characters you, know, you notice in Leonardo da Vinci's depiction, they're all white Europeans. <laughs> but we're talking about Israelis, Middle East, darker complected, brown skin not white skin. So uh, Leonardo can't get outside of himself. I mean, here's the other thing. Passover takes place after sundown in the evening. Can you see the windows? Does that look like it's nighttime? It's like an Italian luncheon over there. It's just entirely inaccurate. Also, can you see the walls of the rooms? That's not the upper room in ancient Israel. That's tapestries and marble stuff. That's not what happens. That's not the kind of upper room the Lord would have celebrated this in. So if I've just disputed all of this, and here am I criticizing Leonardo da Vinci of all. I mean, it's masterful, but it's inaccurate, entirely inaccurate. So then what would the setting, what would the table look like at this Passover meal? What would it look like this? Take a look at that. That's what it would have looked like. So you notice it's uh, like a horseshoe-shaped arrangement. It's not linear. It's called a triclinium. Romans, that was the Roman form, and the Romans were occupiers of the land at the time, so the Jews took on this custom. It's a Roman triclinium. See, there'd be an empty spot in the middle, and that would be for entertainers, and servers. You would sit around the perimeter of the table. Notice, they're on pillows or couches, and this is interesting, they're leaning, you would, you would, you would recline, so your head would be towards the table, your feet are back this way, you would recline on your left side. You would be leaning on your left elbow, your elbow would be planted on the table, you're leaning on it, and you would be eating with your right hand. You say, what if, what, what if you were left-handed? Eh, even left-handed people had to learn to eat with their right hand. I am not lying to you. That's exactly 
what they would be doing. And that's why in those days, if someone was caught stealing something and the penalty was to cut off his right hand, ah, what would that mean? That means he can't fit in at the banquet. I'm telling you. No right hand. I mean, you just, you're ostracized. You are socially ostracized. Hey, do you remember the time there was a place called Capernaum, Kfar Nahum. Some of you have been there, Capernaum. The Lord entered into a synagogue and uh, he healed a man with a withered right hand. They went crazy because this guy was a social misfit. He's not going to the banquet. He can't eat with his right hand until Jesus healed him. Can you see the significance of all this stuff? Now, as for the seating arrangements around the table, I want to suggest to you uh, how I think it actually took place. So take a look at this depiction. As you can see, if you look carefully, the host, Jesus, would have been reclining on the left second seat from the beginning. Can you see it? It's that gold-colored spot. That's the seat that Jesus would have occupied. This throws off all our thinking, because you would think, no, he'd be in the middle. I mean, you would be wrong. This is Middle Eastern society. The, the host would sit on that very seat, on the, as you face it, on the left-hand side, second seat from the beginning. That's where Jesus would have been reclining. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, I'll tell you where he sat in just a second. First of all, what's his name, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Yes, yeah, see, we know that, and yet John, who's writing this, does not identify himself, does he? Why? I'll tell you why. He knew his commission was to glorify Jesus, not himself. John's gospel is not about John. John's gospel is about John's Savior, and therefore, he, he wouldn't have the gall even to name him. Nowhere in John's gospel does John name himself. Isn't that interesting? We happen to know about In fact, John doesn't say, I am the disciple who loves Jesus. <laughs> he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. He wouldn't even claim that as a virtue. I love my Lord. No, no, no. His highest claim was this. My Lord loves me. By the way, you could do that if you're a Christian. You can boast about that. John wouldn't boast about his own stuff, but he would boast about this. <gasps> I'm an object of the Lord's affection. Unlovely though I be, I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves. Uh, folks, make that your primary identity. Make that your primary identity. One time, a million years ago, I was counseling with a lady. She was raped. It was here in Houston. She was after work at a bus stop, sitting on a bench. A guy in a van pulled up, pulled her into the car, and assaulted her. She was a Christian. For six years, um, she suffered, and... Uh, she allowed this man to redefine her essential identity. She now her, saw herself as a rape victim. Oh, no, 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 no. She's a disciple whom Jesus loves who had been raped. Can you see the difference? She empowered the rapist now, not just physically, but emotionally. She allowed the rapist to redefine her whole identity. For the rest of her life now, I'm a rape victim. No, 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 no. You're a child of the king who was raped. Big difference. So what's happened to you? 
What messages have you received in growing up or even now? Please don't let somebody redefine your identity. You are one whom Jesus loves. Don't let anything or anyone rob you of that. There is no better deal. Don't look for a better deal. That's the highest designation you and I could ever... We don't need anything more, and we are nothing less. Messages to the contrary, notwithstanding. The message of Jesus is, I love you. You are a disciple whom I love. And nothing to do with your merits or virtues or attractiveness. It's his gracious, sovereign choice to affix his unconditional love upon you just as he did upon John, don't try to figure it out. It's irrational. It's the irrational love of God. It is amazing grace. And that's your identity and mine. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody or anything take it away from you. Now, uh, you can see as we look again at this scene, you can see again now where this disciple whom Jesus loved, John, would have been sitting. Again on the left, noticed first seat. Why? That's where the right-hand man would be seated. John would be there. He would be the one whom the host would most rely on for assistance. It was always done that way. So the host would have the second seat on the left, but his right-hand man, his assistant, would occupy the first seat. So that's where John was. Now you can get an idea how this happened. John is leaning on his elbow. He's on his left side. He's leaning on his elbow. Jesus is seated right here. All John has to do is turn back. And what's his position? He's on the bosom, on the breast of the Lord Jesus. You see? And he could have conversation with him. He's so close that nobody else could hear. Now it makes sense. They're not sitting in chairs. It's not a linear arranged table. It's this kind of arrangement. All, all John had to do is lean back, and he's right there talking, talking to the Lord Jesus. And so the text says, as we read, verse 25, he leaned back on Jesus' bosom and asked him, without anyone else hearing, Lord, who is it? Who is the one who will betray you? And nobody else could hear the conversation. But Peter wanted to. But Peter couldn't hear. You know why? Because Peter was not seated there. I think Peter was seated. Can you see him across the road there? He's on the right side of this arrangement. And I want to tell you how things worked out. In descending order, it goes in order of importance. Most important on the left side, they wind around the table. And by the time you get to where Peter is seated, that's the seat of the least important guest at dinner. Was the Lord disgusted with Peter? No, he was forming him. Arrogant, prideful Peter had to be brought down a couple pegs. So he got the seat in the least significant place around the table. Now from there, he could look across and he could see uh, the Lord and John and he beckoned to John, ask him who it is. Who is the, this is Peter. Ask him who the betrayer is. And John could lean right back here and ask him that very question. And Peter wants to know with some gesture, you know, point, is it that guy? Is it that guy? 
That's the seating arrangement in this particular case. And so it says, verse 24, Peter gestured to John. So he's across the table. He can't shout out to him. Everyone will hear. But he could gesture. He gestured to him and said, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He doesn't have that kind of access to the master here. He needs to be humbled. So he doesn't have this great seat of honor. So he's beckoning to John. You're there next to him. Ask him who he's talking about. That's kind of what's going on. So unlike the Da Vinci painting where the Lord is seated in the center, no, no, no. It was on the left side of this table arrangement that was the place reserved for the person of highest rank. And that's where the Lord was seated. Okay, so we see where the Lord was. We see where John was. We see where Peter was. What about Judas? Well, folks, you can see where he was seated. He was seated immediately to the Lord's left. And you say, what's up with that? Now, folks, I'm telling you this. That was the seat of highest honor after the host. Seat of high. Here's the host. On his right side was his right-hand assistant, trusted assistant, and on the left would be the guest of honor. That's Judas the betrayer. That is amazing grace. Folks, right up until the end, the Lord Jesus is grieving and giving Judas every opportunity to repent. What about you? Have you, ever, have you ever fallen, you're a Christian, into such darkness? It, it's suffocating and you, you don't think you can get out and you've stopped trying. Could I please remind you of where Judas was seated? It's not arbitrary. I could see the Lord saying, Judas, you sit here. Everyone else in the room is freaking out. Remember, they had previously argued who's the greatest. Well, it's not Peter. Peter's on the other side of the room in the place of least importance. John's next to, and Judas is in the seat of honor. The Lord's heart is breaking. He takes no pleasure, even though he knows what's coming. He takes no pleasure in Judas falling into the hands of the evil one. He gives him an opportunity right until the end to repent. You have that opportunity tonight, so do I. You have not outsinned the grace of God. No. His grace is grace that is greater than all our sin. And if you doubt it, just remember where Judas is seated around the table. And then the text says, verse 26, we read it. He, this is the one, he dips the morsel and gives it to him. But now you can see how the Lord could do that. Where the Lord is seated at that table, he just extends his hand. He takes some unleavened bread. He scoops up some food. He just leans right over here. And he offers Judas that morsel of food. And it was the custom in those days for the host to do this so as to distinguish whoever was the guest of honor. The guest of honor would be fed directly by the host. Could it be? This is overwhelming. Could it be? That the Lord Jesus loved Judas so much that he gave him the seat of honor and personally served him. Could it be that Satan's hold on him would be so great that Judas would literally bite the hand that fed him? It could be. 
And so the Lord is making one more appeal to Judas and his traitorous heart. There's tragedy here. But again and again, the Lord Jesus appeals to Judas's darkened heart. And again and again, Judas remains unmoved. And so verse 27 tells us, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Satan is real. He was at the first communion service. He's at this Passover. Satan is at the Last Supper, and he's in the process of capturing somebody's heart. As Judas shut his heart to the Lord, he is in effect opening it to Satan. Those are the only options. Which is it for you? It's either a heart open wide to the Lord Jesus or the only other option. There's no neutrality here. It's a heart open to Satan. Behind the scenes is the real reality and the real reality is a cosmic battle between Satan and Savior for one such as you and I. It's like a tug of war. Who are you going to lean into? It's either Satan or, or Savior. And so verse 28, now, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he, the Lord, had, had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. Now what's up there? It's very, very customary on Passover to this very day for people to take up a special offering for poor people who cannot, who do not have the financial wherewithal to celebrate Passover. They can't buy the foods and all the rest. And so those who have on this occasion give to to those who have not. And Judas was the designated treasurer of this group. Did you know that? People would make offerings to the Lord and his disciples and they would minister and live out of it and the money box was kept by Judas and so they're assuming what the Lord is talking about is that Judas just needs a little motivation to now get up from the table take the money box and make a contribution to the poor so that they could celebrate the Passover as well don't you see Judas had them all fooled yeah but not Jesus and neither do you I mean, your private life can be kept private. You could succeed at it. But not from the Lord. Nothing's private. He's the God with whom we have to make do. How did someone refer to him in a very interesting way? He's the hound of heaven. He's not looking to devour us. He's looking to win us. You can't outrun him. You're not hidden in the shadows. (laughs) He sees, and he loves. Run to Jesus, run from Satan. So our closing verse, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he, that's Judas, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. And that's where the text ends. Is that just a time indicator? Is the writer John, is he just filling us in on what time of day it is? Maybe. But I think there's more to it than this just being a time indicator. Listen, it's symbolic. When Judas left Jesus, who is the light of the world, there's nothing left but the night. There's nothing but darkness. There's either 
we being enveloped by the light or being smothered by the night, by the darkness. That's the way it is. If we submit ourselves to Christ, we walk in the light. But if we turn our backs on him, we go out into the night, just like Judas did. The way of light, the way of darkness are the only two options that are set before us. I don't want to make it complicated. Where are you? Are you in the light? Or is the darkness your reality? What I'm about to say is so easy, we stumble over it. Ask Jesus to dispel the darkness in you. Tell the king you wish to be his. Tell him you've drifted like Judas. You've turned your back on his ministrations and grace and you are about to be extinguished by the night. But tell him you believe he offers you an opportunity, a hopeful opportunity to come out of the darkness and into his loving arms so as to be enlightened again. And then tell Satan, I cancel out any ground I have given to you. Now, every time I say this, someone freaks out. Why? The same Bible that tells us about Savior tells us about Satan. Now, why would you speak to Satan? Because he's under no obligation to obey your thoughts. That's why. He doesn't even know what you're thinking. Do you know Satan is not omniscient? Only the creator is. Satan is a creaturely created being. He's more powerful than you and I, but he's still a creaturely being. He's not the creator. Therefore, he's under no obligation to obey our thoughts. God can read our thoughts. He knows what they are. Satan can't unless he inserts them in there. Otherwise, he doesn't know what you're thinking. Therefore, you don't have to buy this. If you're in bondage, you ought to, if it's the bondage of sin, if it is, you ought to name it as such. You ought to confess it. You ought to turn from it. You ought to come into the light. And then you ought to say the, to the prince of darkness, you now have no hold on me. You have no right to me. I claim the blood of Jesus over you. Go from me. I cancel out. It's through confession and repentance. I cancel out any ground I have given to you. If the sun sets you free, yeah, be free indeed. This is the dichotomy. Well, I'm in the middle. No, you're not. You're in the light or you're in the darkness and you know and your heart's speaking to you and your mind knows it's one or the other. We're going to end here in about 30 or 40 seconds. We're going to go out, figuratively speaking. Let it be out into the night, only chronologically in terms of the day, but not metaphorically. No, let's not leave with Jesus behind us. Leave with Jesus in us. And there is no room for Satan and Savior in the same person, one or the other. Dethrone Satan through confession and repentance and enthrone Jesus on the throne of your life. Go out into the night. You don't have to beg or plead. He's the Jesus who stood ready to forgive Judas. He stands ready to forgive you and me.
the Lord Jesus. Grace, yours, greater than all our sin. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for your willingness to embrace one such as us. Sometimes we can't even stand ourselves. You think it's a tragedy if we forfeit opportunity and potential and intimacy with you causes anguish of your soul, causes you to be troubled in spirit. Oh, God in heaven, you're, you're already persuaded that there could be more for us and you've already made a way. It's the cross on which you have done. It's the bridge over which we can walk to be back in the light. I suppose some here have never made that decision to begin with, to accept you as the bridge into a fresh relationship with you. I pray that they'd make that decision tonight, but for others of us who are Christians, we're defeated. We're in the clutches of the evil one, <laughs> though redeemed. And I pray, oh God, in the power of your spirit, we'd be convicted of patterns of sin, confess it, repent of it, and then leave this place walking in the light. You, Jesus, are the light of the world. We pray, oh God, we would give you no cause to experience anguish of soul, but instead we would be in such union with you that we walk together in this life and on into eternity together. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.